Matthew chapter 17 says this, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And did they not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased? So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Well, I have a few things to tell you that may seem unbelievable, but are actually true. Um, Years ago, there were twins uh, that grew up separated from birth, and they lived actually about 40 miles away from each other, but didn't know each other. Um, I don't even know if they knew that they had a twin, Um, but they ended up meeting when they were in their 30s, and uh, there were some similarities that they had that were kind of uncanny. For example, both of them, after they were adopted, were given the name James. Both of them married a woman named Linda. Both of them had a a dog, Pat, named Toy. Both of them had a son. The one was named James Allen, with A-L-L-E-N. The other one was James Allen, A-L-E-N, one L. They both got divorced. After they got divorced, both of them married a woman named Betty. Hard to believe, but true. Another story, the writer Mark Twain was born in 1835 when Halley's Comet was passing by the earth. It only happens about every 76 years or so. 1909, Mark Twain said this, I came in with Halley's Comet in 1835. It's coming next year and I expect to go out with it. He ended up dying on the same day that Halley's Comet appeared in 1910. Hard to believe, but true. Anybody ever seen the movie Benjamin Button before? Anybody seen Benjamin Button? Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, it's basically about someone who kind of ages in reverse. As you know, he gets older, instead of becoming an older person, he becomes like a little child, eventually like a little baby. Um, it's science fiction, of course, but there's actually an organism that can do that. There's this type of jellyfish, um, and this jellyfish is called the Teratopsis dory. And it can actually do that. It can go and kind of develop and reproduce, and then it can enter into earlier stages in its lifespan. In essence, it can become a child again. And scientists think that it's basically immortal because it can kind of go in this cycle and return to childhood over and over and over again. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Another thing that's hard to believe, and I actually had to look this up. I didn't believe it myself. Human beings have been using whale feces called ambergris for hundreds of years in perfume. Yes, in perfume. Look it up. It's called ambergris. 
and it's kind of a rare type of whale poop. And, you know, I don't know, I think it's like one in a hundred whales produces this, and I don't know how you find it, but it's like, it's worth as much as platinum. And it used to be in a lot of high-end perfumes. It's still in some, I believe, but use, a, lot, a lot of times they use synthetic, a synthetic form of whale poop now rather than the real thing because it's so expensive. It's hard to believe, but it's true. Look it up. Ambergris. There's some things in life that are hard to believe but true. Sometimes there's emotional things that are hard to believe but true. Like, not everyone's going to like us. Sometimes that's hard for us to believe. Some people think that you're annoying. Some people think, lots of people think I'm annoying. Some people just don't like us. But that's some, you know, we'd like to think everyone likes us. We'd like to think that we get along with everyone and everyone, you know, likes us, but it's not always the case. Sometimes we have a hard time emotionally believe that all of us are going to die. We're all going to die one day. It's hard for us to think about sometimes. Uh, maybe sometimes we have trouble believing that a relationship is actually over. And so, you know, kind of we live in the past and we can't really come to grips with it or have trouble coming to grips with a loss that we've experienced in our life. And sometimes there are spiritual things that we have a hard time believing. Uh, it's like, why is God allowing this to happen? Why does he allow these bad things to happen in my life? Or, you know, maybe we have trouble believing that hope is possible. Maybe we have trouble believing that we really, really can change. Uh, or maybe we have trouble believing in God's heart for someone who's lost that we've been praying for and sharing the gospel with for years, and yet, you know, they're just far away from God. And sometimes we just have trouble believing God. And I think that's where the disciples are in this passage. I, I think that they're kind of at a crisis of faith. Uh, this episode is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, the one thing that's kind of in line in all of these is that this transfiguration happens after Jesus says these really hard things. And we looked the last couple weeks at the things that Jesus says. Uh, remember, uh, Jesus asked the disciples, you know, who do the crowd say that I am? And they asked them, who do you say that I am? And then Peter, as kind of the spokesman for the group, says, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so there's an incredible statement of faith. But then Jesus tells them that he's going to die. And Peter rebukes him, takes him to the side and says, May it never be, Lord. And then remember what happens to Peter. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He goes on from there to talk, tell the disciples that not only is he going to die, but they're going to potentially die too. He says, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And so we don't know for sure, but I imagine this sparked a crisis of belief. It's, you know, Peter makes this incredible statement. The disciples are probably in line with that. But then it's like, what is Jesus doing? Like, how could the Messiah die? How could God be authorizing this kind of apparent suicide mission? And so they're probably experiencing this crisis of faith where they're not sure exactly what Jesus is doing. And I think that's why Jesus brings them to this episode of the transfiguration. Probably because they had a hard time believing. And so in this message today, as we look at this passage, I want to kind of consider that question what do I do when I have trouble believing? What do I have to do when I have trouble believing? Specifically, what do I do when I have trouble believing God? I think there's a few things that Jesus shows us in this passage. And the first is that we need to remember that God is on our side. We need to remember that God is on our side. Notice in this passage, it says in the text that we're looking at today, Jesus led Peter, James, and John up the mountain. 
They didn't happen upon Jesus, you know, being transfigured. They didn't just accidentally find their way there. Jesus led them there because Jesus knew what they needed in that moment. And sometimes when we're struggling in our faith and we're asking that question, uh, you know, what do I do when I have trouble believing? How can I believe God in the midst of the circumstance? Sometimes we're like, it's like we're over here and then God's over here and we just kind of have to figure our way out, figure our way to God. But that's not what we see in the scriptures. We see that God is for us. We see that when we're struggling, God wants to strengthen our faith. And he doesn't always do it in the way that we'd hope he would. It doesn't do it in the way that we'd expect. But in this context, Jesus gives the disciples this incredible experience of his glory so that they would, their, faith, their faith would be strengthened. And again, this is something that was, would be an encouragement for generations of believers. It was so significant that uh, all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, included in, in their writings. And so it's an incredible event where Jesus confirms and strengthens their faith. Uh, in his book, Against the Flow, Oxford professor John Lennox notes that when God calls us to do something, he gives us what we need at the moment that we need it, not sooner. He illustrates this principle uh, by talking about an encounter with a Russian follower of Jesus who had spent years in the Siberian labor camp for teaching his children about Jesus. Lennox writes this, he, speaking of that Russian follower of Jesus, described to me that he had seen things that no man should ever have to see. I listened, thinking how little I really knew about life and wondering how I would have fared under his circumstance. As if he had read my thoughts, he suddenly said, you couldn't cope with that, could you? Embarrassed, I stumbled out something like, no, I'm sure you're right. He then grinned and said, nor could I. I was a man who fainted at the sight of his own blood, let alone that of others. But what I discovered in that camp was this. God does not help us to face theoretical situations, but real ones. Like you, I couldn't imagine how one could cope in the gulag. But once there, I found that God met me, exactly as Jesus had promised his disciples when he was preparing them for victimization and persecution. Lennox adds, we can be confident then that the Lord will give us a sufficient amount of grace to handle whatever comes our way, whenever it comes our way, and not necessarily a moment before. God is on our side. God is working to strengthen it, our faith. The enemy wants to destroy us. The enemy wants to tear our faith down. But God wants to build us up. And he'll give us what we need at the moment that we need it. You know, sometimes, you know, maybe we're praying and seeking God, crying out to him, and maybe he'll bring another believer in our life just to encourage us, to give us the word that we need in that moment. You know, maybe we're praying and crying out to God and struggling, and maybe he'll just lead us to a scripture passage that maybe, you know, maybe didn't mean anything to us in the past, but in that moment, it just speaks into our situation. Maybe he'll give us this unexpected blessing just as, just as a sign of his favor, a sign of his faithfulness. God provides for us. God strengthens us when we need strengthening, and he works for us. There's one other thing in this passage I'd like to draw your attention to in this regard. Uh, when God declares, when he says of Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, there's a hint in this episode of another episode in Genesis where God called Abraham to uh, take his son Isaac uh, to sacrifice him. Genesis 22.2 says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
And so on this day, Jesus is going up to be transformed before the disciples, yet the day is coming very soon when, when he's going to go up to the mountain to die, to take our place. The beloved son would become a curse for the sake of his people. And this shows us that God is for us and his intention is to strengthen us, not to tear us down. The enemy tears us down. And so we are not left by ourselves. We have a Savior who cares about us and meets us in our point of need. There's something else we need to remember in this passage, and we need to, and that is to remember the greatness of our God. Notice the incredible sight that Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. In the Old Testament, remember Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he came down and his face was radiating from seeing the glory of God. But in this episode, it's a little different because Jesus isn't radiating. His face isn't radiating because, you know, he's just reflecting the glory of God. It's, he's radiating because it's flowing out of him. The glory of God is flowing out of him. And, and then a cloud overshadows him. And again, the voice of God says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And their response is they fall on their faces before Jesus. They are terrified. And they're reminded of the greatness of God. Sometimes when we're experiencing difficulty, we need to be reminded of the greatness of God. Sometimes we're facing things in our life where we're just struggling, and our problems, they just seem so big and so insurmountable and impossible to us. And just we need just a vision of God where God is like, I'm bigger than your problems. I can handle anything that you face in your life. And sometimes we need that vision. I think about Job and all the things that happened to him, all the tragedy that occurred in his life. And the question, of course, is why? Why did God allow these things to happen? And, and you know, kind of knowing the backstory, we can kind of theorize some ideas of maybe why God allowed it to happen. But Job isn't given the reason. At the end of the book of Job, uh, he basically, he doesn't get answers. He gets a vision of who God is of the greatness of who God is. And sometimes we need that vision of who God is, that he can handle our problems. And notice the grace in this passage. They fall on their faces, they're terrified, and Jesus comes over to them. The sinless son of God comes over and touches them and says, rise, do not be afraid. The God who dwells in unapproachable light condescends to us, to love us, to care for us. He says, rise, have no fear. And so this ought to give us courage. This ought to strengthen us as we see the greatness of God and how incredibly powerful he is and how we can handle anything in our lives. Pastor Tim Downs uh, talks about something called psyops or psychological operations. And uh, psychological operations have been used for generations in warfare. And he gives one particular example uh, in, in the life of Alexander the Great. And there was one particular episode in his life where um, there was this much larger army that was chasing after him, pursuing him, and he knew that he couldn't defeat them. And so what he did was he, he called his armor bearers and he said, I need you to make some, um, some chest plates, some helmets, and I need you to make them so big that they would fit people that are like seven or eight feet tall. And so they did that, and as they were leaving, they left all of that armor on the ground. The enemy forces who were pursuing them came, found this ginormous armor, and thought, there's no way we want to fight against these giants. And they gave up the pursuit and left. Downs writes this. He says, Satan likes to play head games with us too, often leaving us demoralized by fear and doubt. We assume Satan is bigger and greater than he is. 
And the quickest way to thwart our enemy, enemy psyops is to gaze upon the greatness of our God. Perhaps all it takes is a quick look at Job 38, 4-7. He writes, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So we need to remember the greatness of God, that he can handle anything in our life, that our problems are so small compared to the greatness of who God is. And sometimes we need that vision of God. But there's another thing we see in this passage, and that is that we need to remember that we don't dwell in glory yet. Jesus is transformed before uh, the disciples, and uh, of course Elijah and Moses are there. And, And Peter, being the spokesman that he is, says, Lord, it's good that we're here. Let me build some tents. Let me build one for you and one for Elijah and one for Moses. And I think essentially what he's saying is, uh, this is an incredible experience. Let's hang out here for a while. Let's live here for a while. But Jesus responds and basically says, you know, he, he doesn't even respond to that. He just shows this vision of himself. And, you know, you think about this and back in the 19th century, there was this theological position called post-millennialism. Um, and this was actually held by a number of uh, really famous theologians like Jonathan Edwards. And uh, back in the 19th century, that was kind of the predominant view. And post-millennialism said that basically the world was going to become a lot better before Jesus comes back. Um, and there would be this, inc- this incredible time, the th- this thousand-year reign where peace and justice would reign, um, where basically the whole world would come to know Jesus and, and Jesus would kind of be on the throne. And this is before he comes back. Um, and so, again, it was the dominant position, and then World War I happened, World War II happened, and, and people became disillusioned, people realized, like, the sinfulness in the human heart, and now it's kind of a minority viewpoint, that peop- most people don't hold that anymore, except for a few. And, and there's kind of this pessimism towards life that, you know, Jesus needs to come back before the world can become that much better. And sometimes I think that in our lives, we have this kind of post-millennial mindset. It's almost like we feel like, if I do the right things, then everything is going to go well in my life. Things are going to be smooth. I'm going to be filled with joy. I'm going to have great relationships. That if, if my heart is right, then God's kingdom is going to kind of outflow around me. But I believe what Jesus says to us is, not yet. Like Peter, he's like, yeah, let's, let's dwell here. Let's hang out here. Let's dwell in this glory for, for a while. But they couldn't do so. They couldn't dwell there. They had a road that was before them, a, a task, a mission that involved suffering. And, of course, the end was glory. The end was going to be spending forever with this resurrected Jesus who's high on the throne. And so that was their future, but they couldn't go there yet. They got a glimpse of that glory, and sometimes we get a glimpse of that glory in our life. We'll get a glimpse of just this incredible joy and the blessings that God gives us. And we're like, God, this is great. It's good that we're here. It's good that we're in this place of glory. It's good that you're blessing me in this way. And we just want to stay there. But we have a task. We're not home yet. And we're not in glory yet. One day that's where we'll be. We're not there yet. Joni Arison Tada, who was acquaint, is acquainted with 
much suffering once said this, we ask less of this life because we know full well that more is coming in the next. The art of living with suffering is just the art of readjusting our expectations in the here and now. Sometimes we have expectations of what life is going to be like, and, and our expectations is the glory, that we're going to have joy, we're going to have happiness, everything is going to go smoothly. And then when it doesn't work out that way, we're disillusioned. And being like, you know, we have trouble believing God because we feel like glory is our future on this earth. But we can't dwell in glory yet. We get a taste of it, but the glory is coming when Jesus returns. Finally, Jesus, God reminds us in this passage, remember to listen to Jesus even when we have questions. Remember to listen to Jesus even when we have questions. Again, notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't answer the disciples' questions. After this episode, they have questions. They ask him one, they ask him one question about Elijah, um, but that's probably just the tip of the iceberg. They still have, still have so many questions, they don't understand exactly what Jesus is going to do. And Jesus doesn't give them all the answers. But he calls them to walk forward in obedience, even with questions. And I believe that's what he calls us to do as well. And... I think he doesn't give us the answers for a couple different reasons. Maybe there's others as well, but two come to mind. Uh, the one is that we just don't understand the ways of God. There's things in our life that God allows to happen or doesn't uh, uh, cause to happen that we just can't understand. It's like the other day, uh, my son, um, I don't think he's ever watched a hockey game. We've never been to a hockey rink with him before. And I was trying to describe hockey to him. And I was like, yeah, there's like this big piece of ice and the ice is inside. It's like this ginormous piece of ice. And, you know, it stays cool in there. And then there's this machine that comes over and cleans the ice. And then you, like, skate on top of the ice. And I'm just looking at him. And I'm like, he has no idea what I'm talking about. I mean, you have to experience You have to go to a hockey rink. If you've never seen it before, you're not going to understand what a hockey rink is. And in the same way, there's some things in our life where we just, you know, we just don't understand it. God knows so much more than we do. And maybe when we get to heaven, some of that will be revealed to us. But there's so much that we don't understand, that, that God's ways are higher than our ways. And so sometimes we're left with questions because, you know, we wouldn't understand even if God told us. I mean, it's, our finite minds wouldn't be able to comprehend it. Um, but secondly, I, and most importantly, I think God wants us to trust in a person rather than a plan. He wants us to trust in him every step of the way, not in a plan. If we have a plan uh, 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 that's going to lead us to uh, perfection, then we don't need to trust in him. He wants to walk with us every step of the way. And we need to walk forward in obedience even when we have questions. In 1880, there was a couple um, by the name of George and Sarah Clark, and they purchased what was called the uh, Pacific Beer Garden. They purchased it to do, be a ministry. They changed it from the Pacific Beer Garden to the Pacific uh, Mission Garden eventually changed to the Pacific Garden Mission of Chicago, the old lighthouse, which is uh, one of the oldest rescue missions in the United States. And at that mission, they helped uh, homeless alcoholics and helped them, you know, just provide for themselves, help them spiritually. And so they were, had this incredible ministry that they were carrying out, and they invested their own money in it. They didn't have any, you know, outside funding. They were just investing their own resources for the most part. Um, just seeing people come to know Jesus, but they ran out of money. And they had this lease, and they tried to secure a loan. They couldn't secure a loan. And it came to a point where they were given 24 hours where they were told, 
you got to come up with this money or the lease is going to run out and the mission is going to have to close. So this was a time of struggling for them. It's like the questions that were going through their mind was, why would God call us to do this? Why, if all of these people are coming to know Jesus, why would we have to close just because of money? And so they have all these questions going through their mind, but they choose to trust God anyways. And they spend just about the whole night praying and praying and praying. They remind God of the souls that are being saved each day. They pray for God's provision. Pray for any way that they can keep the mission open. The next morning, they woke up and it seemed like nothing had changed. But they walked out the door of their house and they looked on in their driveway and it was covered with something white. kind of reminded them of manna. And they looked closely and they realized they were mushrooms. Which was weird because it wasn't the season for mushrooms. They went up and collected all the mushrooms together, went down to a local uh, hotel, famous hotel, sold all the mushrooms for an incredible price, and were able to pay the rent and keep the mission open. They walked forward in obedience even when they had questions. That's what Christ calls us to do. To kind of sum all this up, to bring it together, we can listen to Jesus even when we don't understand Him. We can listen to him even when we don't understand. We can do so because God is on our side. He's working for our good. He's going to strengthen us. We serve an incredibly great God. Our problems are nothing compared to him and his power. Our struggles of life are temporary. We're destined for glory, but we can't dwell there yet. And so he calls us to walk forward in obedience, even when we have questions. We can listen to Jesus even when we don't understand him. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, there's a few characters, Lucy, Edmund, and their cousin Eustace, and they're taken to Narnia where this Christ-like figure named Aslan, the lion, is. And in this one particular scene, they're on this boat, and uh, there were several other people, a crew, and they've come to this island called the Island Where Dreams Come True. Uh, but the dreams aren't good dreams, they're nightmares. And so the ship's crew is overcome with fear. They begin wildly rowing in the darkness. Each sailor hears a different terrifying noise. Huge scissors, enemies crawling up the side of the ship. Terrible sounds. But what does Lucy do? Lucy prays. She says, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you loved us at all, send us help now. But the darkness did not grow any less. But she began to feel a little, very, very little better. After all, nothing has really happened to us yet, she thought. C.S. Lewis continues and says, A ray of light falls on the ship and Lucy sees something in it like a cross. It is an albatross. The albatross circles them three times, lands on their masts, and then flies ahead of them, leading their ship out of the darkness. But no one except Lucy knew that as the albatross circled the mast, it had whispered to her, Courage, dear heart. And the voice was Aslan's. In a few moments, the darkness turned into a grayness ahead. Then almost before they dared to begin hoping, they had shot out into the sunlight and were in the warm blue world again. And all at once, everybody realized that there was nothing to be afraid of and never had been. I believe that's exactly what happens in this passage. Disciples are going through this time of doubt, 
They're headed for this road of suffering and persecution. And Jesus just gives them a glimpse of his glory. He says, courage, dear heart. Take heart. This is who I am. I am the one who is going to be exalted, the one who's going to be rising again, and you can trust me. You can walk forward in obedience. You can go to the path that I have for you, even if it takes you to a cross. You can walk that road because of who I am. That we can trust Jesus. We can obey him even though we don't always understand him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your incredible love for us. We thank you that you are for us, that you didn't leave us to our own devices, that you provided us exactly what, you, what we needed. And we know most of all what we needed was a sacrifice, that while you were transfigured on that mountain thousands of years ago before these disciples, you were also crucified on another hill. And on that hill you died for us so that we could experience life. Help us to never forget that you're for us. Help us to never forget that your intention is to give us life and hope and a future, that we're not left to our own devices, we're not left to our own questions, that you'll give us what we need to strengthen our faith. Help us to remember that, Lord. Help us to remember your faithfulness, to get a vision of who you are, to remember that our problems are nothing compared to your power and your greatness. Help us to walk forward in obedience, trusting you even when we don't understand you, even when we don't understand why we're in the valley of the shadow of death, even when we don't understand why you're allowing things or not causing other things to happen. Help us to trust you, knowing that you love us, knowing that you're working all things for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name I pray, amen.